from the Australian National Academy of Music. This is the Upbo Download. I'm Luke Carvin. My name is Kenny Keppel. Welcome to the show. Hey everyone, it's Kenny here. It's Luke. And we've got something a little bit different to our normal podcast this week. We were invited to present a live panel discussion at a concert last week featuring the music of Frank Zappa and John Cage. Uh, we had Jeannie Marsh on the panel. And Pete Neville. And Michael Kieran Harvey, the pianist. It was recorded live in front of an audience and it was a, basically a panel discussion on the life and times of Frank Zappa. And that of John Cage as well. So what, what, what we're going to do this episode is just play you that entire panel discussion. And we hope you enjoy it. Here we are. Here we are. Good evening, everybody. My name is Luke Carbon. My name is Kenny Kebble. And welcome to this very special live edition of the Upbo Download, a podcast that we've been producing for the last year or so about the going-ons in classical music, and particularly as they pertain to Anim. And we're delighted tonight to be joined by three very special guests. Uh, Jeannie Marsh, who is a Melbourne mezzo-soprano and musical director. Uh, Peter Neville, who is the head of percussion here at Anam and has been working with Elysian Ensemble for over 30 years now. 31 years, I think. It's 31 years. That's yeah. very impressive. And Mr. Michael Kieran Harvey, uh, Tasmanian pianist extraordinaire and one of our finest musical exports uh, around the world. <laughs> All right. So we're here to talk about Cage and we're here to talk about Zappa. Yeah. And um, we kind of wanted to open up this uh, discussion with the idea of Cage and Zappa being mavericks of a, of, of, of a musical kind um, and sort of independent thinkers and, and people who were taking totally separate influences and putting them together into their own thing. Um, Michael, do you want to just tell us a little bit about how Cage might fit into that kind of idea of a maverick? I think Cage realised early on when he was studying with Schoenberg that he wasn't uh, cut out for the uh, line of uh, musical composition that uh, Schoenberg represented. And I think Schoenberg realised this as well, but he also realised that in Cage he had a student who was extremely original. And uh, so somehow Cage had to find a way uh, of expressing himself uh, which uh, was different to the way that was shown by Schoenberg. And I think he gravitated towards uh, characters like Henry Cowell, uh, not only because they were alternative, but because they were also aesthetically similar to him. This is my theory anyway. I think Henry Cowell was actually imprisoned for being homosexual. And I think Cage had a bit of a struggle with his sexuality, ending up, of course, with Merce Cunningham, uh, the dancer. Uh, But I think he was married at at one stage. Mm. And um, I think uh, this sense of... um, almost persecution by society, um, would have been fairly strong in the young cage. Um, And And a source for resistance against... against Well, not resistance, but trying to find a way to survive. Mm. And I think there were, you know, it was the war period, the Second World War period, and, of course, that was predicated on racial discrimination and um, outsider people being different. And um, so there was a lot of this sort of... uh, uh, I think searching for alternative ways of defining yourself as a human uh, that were uh, around that stage. And I think for that reason, um, people like uh, Rabindranath Tagore, the um, 
uh, Nobel Prize winning uh, Indian philosopher, musician and uh, poet and writer had great influence uh, throughout the world. The, the idea that the East had the answers for so much of the angst that was happening in the Western world was very strong. And of course, in the 40s, I think this was something, it was taken up in Australia by people like Raymond Hansen. Um, uh, it was uh, a, a very strong influence uh, and helped people like Cage who did feel different and were looking for something um, against the sort of um, objective individualism of the West uh, that, and capitalism that was um, uh, something that they could uh, latch on to as a, as a survival thing. And so was Cage and Maverick because of that context, do you think? Um, I, I think he was just looking... I don't think he would have regarded himself as a maverick. He was just looking for the truth and it wasn't in the society that he was growing up in. And um, I think a lot of people feel feel like this, particularly young people, and uh, particularly when power is um, uh, hegemonic, and when power is um, in the hands of very um, conservative older people, and th those were the times. And when this power resulted in things like world war, um, fighting over maintaining um, the the ways of living of certain. Um, countries or, or uh, philosophical things. Um, you see that sort of Eastern philosophy had, had um, nothing to do with that. It taught um, relinquishing of material possessions, mm. um, that they weren't important. Um, it, it was relinquishing everything that capitalism stood for, basically. And, um, you know, the, the First World War was horrific and was basically a way of um, um, uh, lightening out the, uh, the the working classes and the poorer classes um, by people who couldn't give a damn about them. And um, so this is all starting to happen again, of course, with the rise of fascism in Europe. And, um, you know, this, this concept... And we're, we're constantly seeing it now with the um, financial crisis. What, what, what do we do? What's the definition of insanity? You install um, the, the previous mistake over and over again. Mm. And uh, we do that. And I think people like Cage and Zappa... Uh, represent people who say, no, no, there's another way of dealing with this, um, through humour, through satire, through seeing how ridiculous the whole thing is. Mm. And these are two figures uh, who really stand out from the 20th century for, for going against the grain, for being um, anti-establishment. So, Pete, could you maybe tell me a little bit about how uh, you see Zappa as a maverick? Um, as with Cage, I doubt he would have seen himself as a <coughs> maverick. He was simply a musician with a vision that he wanted to carry through. And I think he's unusual because he was doing things in the world of rock and roll that no one else was doing and then doing things in the, in the realm of so-called classical music that no one else was doing. So he was sort of treading a strange line between the two. I mean, he grew up in the sort of stultifying eras of the 40s and the 50s, maybe when things were quite conservative in American culture as well. And um, Baltimore. In Baltimore. What's new in Baltimore? And, um, you know, so America was ripe for change by the 60s when the mothers of invention hit the scene. Mm. But he grew up, you know, with a great love for rock and roll and doo-wop music and blues and everything else. But it was first, um, the famous story of first hearing the music of Varese, the track Ionization, which is one mm. of the seminal works for percussion ensemble. It was the work that, in fact, launched the Western Percussion Ensemble in 1929. So hearing that mm. gave him his love for 
classical notated music and then he fell in love with the music of um, Webern and Bartok, Stravinsky and others. So he was incorporating all those elements into a sort of standard rock format and, and getting up at you know, Madison Square Garden or whatever and doing concerts including bits of the um, third piano concerto of Bartok or the um, March of the Devil, Triumphant March of the Devil from Soldier's Tale. He, he presented a Verre's uh, concert in front of a rock and roll audience. Didn't he? And he worked with Nicholas Slonimsky, who yeah. actually conducted the world premiere of Ionization. Mm. So there's all these amazing sort of connections yes. there. And then, you know, crossing over and writing for groups like Ensemble Intercontemporain and then the work with Ensemble Moderne, some of which people in the room would have seen just a month or so back. Um, that was the Yellow Shark work, yes? Well, the Yellow Shark and then later Gregory Peccary was other works of, of his that they did. Um, yeah, the Yellow Shark was the work... Um, that he, which was extant works arranged for Ensemble Medan as well as new material that he did. And we spoke about it at the time that he finally found a group of musicians in Ensemble Medan who could actually sort of keep up with his demands because he'd been disillusioned with live musicians for quite a while from the 80s on, which is when he started writing exclusively for the computer for the Synclavier. Um, for those who aren't aware, could you tell us a little bit about the Synclavier? Uh, for, the music you would have heard on your way in, by the way, was uh, Frank Zappa performing the works of Francesco Zappa on the Sinclavier, an instrument, which you, may, yep. you might want to tell us a bit more the about. The one that was fading out is the one you're going to hear, Sonata Number no. 3 in E-flat major, that will be performed. They know who Francesco Zappa? Um, well, oh, we, perhaps not. Well, <laughs> Francesco Zappa was um, a, a born in Italy, but spent most of his working life in the Netherlands. I think he was born in 1717 and yeah. died in 1803, if I'm correct, quite a long and fruitful life. Um, not a maverick, you'd have to say, <laughs> yeah. from the sound of the music. But Frank just became interested in the fact that they shared the same name. There's no um, family connection from what we know, but Frank did put out a whole album done on the computer of works of Francesco. And what's interesting is you hear very Zappa orchestration, lots of marimba and vibraphone, the sort of tuned percussion sounds that were sort of a <laughs> hallmark of Zappa's band music as well as his um, classical uh, and orchestral music. Um, so, yeah, so the Sinclair was simply the leading synthesizer of its time in the 80s. It could sample music and do all sorts of fancy things that people now do with a $2 app on their personal phones. <laughs> but it cost quite a lot of money back then, like the Fairlight, which was developed in Australia back in the early 80s, which cost up to, I think at the time, something like $200,000. You can go and see one in the Powerhouse Museum in Sydney if you're Only really David interested. Bowie could afford it. Well, yeah, yeah. yeah, a handful of people. Brian Eno maybe yeah. had one, I don't know. But, yeah, so they, they were sort of the leading machines of their time, basically. And they had to really uh, draw on, on that because, as you're saying, he felt that the musicians of the time couldn't, couldn't cut it um, with the stuff that he was writing for them. And that was both the classical muse musicians and the rock musicians. And so when he was working with his band, he had this extraordinary work ethic of um, uh, when they were on tour, they had two-hour, three-hour rehearsals every day on tour to keep absolutely tight with this extraordinary complex mm. music that he wrote for his band. And he was very, very strict with them. Um, and similarly with um, orchestral musicians, he, um, he constantly felt that um, uh, he wasn't getting enough... Uh, rehearsal time with them, and uh, and this was led him to uh, start with his own work to um, become a, a record producer himself, have his own studio, make his own rehearsal schedule. One of the first private studios. Yeah. yeah. This is Barking Pumpkin. Was that was that come later? No, no. It was Studio Z. 
Oh, right. Um, What's the utility muffin research kitchen? Is that just the... Oh, that, that, <laughs> was the mobile, that was the mobile thing, which the Deep Purple had to use to record in because um, their studio burnt down. That in Montreux, where, which, which is... That's where smoke, smoke on the smoke water. Smoke on the water comes from. We yeah. all went down in Montreux. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. It's um, yeah, pretty crazy bloke. Yeah. yeah. But So these are the kind of things that he was doing at the time. Um, but also he had he, he was a very strong personality, not just in the way that he rehearsed his band and, mm. and rehearsed orchestras and, and, and his 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 work ethic, but also some of his personal uh, convictions that he had. Mm. Jeannie, do you want to maybe tell us a little yeah, bit well, about that? Yeah, well, I really uh, came to Frank Zappa through this book, the real Frank Zappa book, um, when it came out in the uh, early 90s. And, uh, Hilarious. It, it's it's and and it really is a book that every musician should read. And when I was teaching students at the College of the Arts and all over, I would always put it on the reading list because it's actually something that gets to the heart of what it is to be um, a totally dedicated musician um, with full integrity for your project, whatever your artistic vision is, to follow it. And um, it's a beautiful story. He does tell his life right from the start there. Um, But there's various incidents that stand out. So um, his family were not musical, but he was obsessed with playing the drums from a very young age. And uh, uh, his parents couldn't afford to keep um, renting the snare drum, which was all they could give him uh, to get this out of his system. So the snare drum went and he just pulled all the pots and pans out of the kitchen and kept obsessively um, teaching himself um, how to play the drums. And that's the, the main thing about uh, Zappa that really stood out to me too, was he was, he was self-taught. But it's the rhythmic foundation of his yeah, language as well. True. Yeah, that's um, true. But here's a guy who taught himself um, drums and guitar. Well, some people do teach themselves how to play instruments. That's a grand tradition. But he also taught himself um, how those immensely complex scores by Stravinsky, um, Boulez, he, he, he was studying all these and looking at Webern and, and uh, Varese, as we know, and, and just sitting there at the age of 15 and trying to work them out. and uh, He came across Varese, he famously tells, yeah. in a remainder bin outside yeah. a record shop. It was being uh, sold for nothing. And yeah. he thought it was the most amazing music and his mother was horrified apparently. Yeah. His mother was horrified yeah. and apparently the, um, the little record player that, that she used to listen to popular songs while she was doing the ironing then went into his bedroom and was never seen again <laughs> and he would play ionisation relentlessly and would use it as a sort of a test for people who came to the house. He'd take them in there and if, if they thought it was rubbish he couldn't continue uh, sort of having a friendship <laughs> with them. Um, but, yeah, that, that amazing dedication to um, teaching himself what he, what he needed to um, pursue these. So, uh, so he got very interested in doo-wop music, in, uh, in jazz, uh, in classical music, and he went off and taught himself what he needed to become an expert, um, to let the vision out. So um, while he was touring around um, the world, he was um, he had pages and pages of manuscript paper which he would obsessively, he just calls it covering, with, with black notes. I mean, he just had all this music in his head that he was desperate to get out. 
Um, he was a workaholic too, yes? I mean, total workaholic. I mean, it was just, it was work, work, work. So in terms of Mavericks, it sort of reminds me of Granger, if we're talking Australians. Um, these people are just, they're just out there. They're just, <laughs> you know, working to the beat of their own drum and doing it at the highest, highest standard, but also with that sense of humour. Um, there's always creeping in there. So his music is a very serious project for him, but he could also have a lot of fun with it. As and, well. and, and the humorous aspect is probably one of the most important aspects of his music. We were talking about putting, <clears throat> um, what did you say, the eyebrows? Putting the eyebrows on it was his little saying to zapper it up and just add yeah. that bit of pizzazz. And that <laughs> of, <laughs> I mean, the, the Francesco yeah. Zappa music that we heard when you were on the way in is perhaps a good example of that. I mean, uh, Sounds he chose to he chose to uh, to give that composition is is quite almost cabaret esque a bit merry go round but but, but done also mm. with a great deal of affection mm. yeah. um, he had um, he had a lot of affection yeah. for classical music mm. and uh, it doesn't sound cynical it sounds no. affectionate no, no. yeah but it's it's not done in a cruel way as as opposed to some of the uh, satires of popular music um, very good Michael Jackson well, anyway but that was a that was a question I had for you in fact uh, about his satirical edge which yeah. permeated. Basically, his entire output. He was interested in um, in pointing out and satirising hypocrisy wherever he found it. Didn't matter if it was religious, political, social. Um, he was absolutely fearless in um, in pillaring it because um, it, it was through his music and his uh, his fantastic writing. His lyrics uh, are, are very. I think undervalued uh, as writing, but they're they're very very clever and very very um, biting in a, mm. in a way that's uh, concise and uh, and and highly intelligent. So he his arguments um, he would take on you know themes like uh, the, um, the the televangelists, or he would take on things like teenage suicide. And um, if you listen to a say suicide chump of um, uh, Zappa, you, there's no way you could kill yourself after listening to that. You just feel like an idiot. Um, <laughs> and um, th this is his his way of, of solving these problems was uh, or looking at politicians. Um, Reagan was one of his great um, targets. Uh, targets, and uh, he. Th this is the way. And really, he his whole fan base and people, musicians especially, um, drew strength from this courage that he had to take these on, and um, and also um, stand up, uh, you know, really stand up in front of the Senate committee and, mm. and fight against uh, censorship. Well, it was Al Gore's wife actually, yeah. uh, Tipper Gore, who was trying to censor rock and roll, and particularly um, his lyrics, um, which were out there. Okay, the lyrics are out there in some of the songs, but um, and they he, weren't the, they weren't the first to try to censor that as well. Like the Albert Hall um, concert, yeah. um, sometime in the sixties, was famously cancelled because there was a line about um, that pads would nappies or something that they didn't like and then they and then they cancelled the entire concert. He struggled mm. with that for his entire career, I think. Mm. Right? Mm. Yeah. yeah, but um, he, he really, as you're saying about the intelligence, the arguments that he put up um, in, in court and in his writings um, for uh, freedom of artists to speak. Uh, are freedom of speech. Arguments. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, that's really what the point is, isn't it? it is. It's the fact that these are just words and they yeah. should be out there. They should be, um, yeah. And uh, in that respect, he's a libertine, isn't he? Really, mm. in many oh respects. yeah, well, a lot of ways. Mm. And he was, yeah, he was very suspicious of government for mm. the same reason. You know, he wanted everybody to be taking responsibility for their own thoughts and uh, and standing up for, uh, and uh, when things needed to be said. 
yeah, the trauma of the draft, for instance, which was um, something that he lived, lived through, mm. the Vietnam War and so forth. Um, th there was, I mean, these were extremely dangerous things for him to take on, but he took them on without any... And uh, Eastern um, European leaders like Vaclav Havel and, uh, you know, um, like there's a statue of Zappa in Lithuania mm. because Eastern Europeans... Um, Looked to him yeah, as, a, as a hero. As, a, as, a hero. Um, as an anti-establishmentarian? As an anti yeah. Well, yeah, against these authoritarian, totalitarian systems. And um, so his influence really uh, was huge. And he's been labelled a misogynist as well. Um, and there's no doubt that a lot of his lyrics are extremely um, uh, critical of women. But they're critical of stupid women, um, <laughs> which is really the, the point. And um, he, as, as he's critical of stupid men and stupid black rules. people it's and stupid uh, black people that want to whiten their skin, for instance, or, um, uh, uh, you know, um, stupid gay people who take it on as a lifestyle choice or something. Um, but of course, the media would have taken that opportunity to. Yeah, he left himself open for, yeah. for this, but yeah, yeah. Uh, but nothing, you know, for for a satirist. I mean, our rock stars today really are stand-up comedians now. Um, <laughs> he was really doing that, but in a rock context. Would you agree? Mm. Mm -hmm. And also on that, he had uh, a very solid um, family. Uh, stable uh, life, so behind the scenes, so he wasn't living the wild rock and roll life. Um, Not doing famous, drugs or anything no. like that. I um, mean, members of his band at famous at one point wanted to sack him from the band because he wouldn't <laughs> take drugs, and he was <laughs> destroying their their fun because he wanted them to stop taking the drugs and uh, getting in the way of them playing the notes effectively. In, in a way, that's a, a Maverick Street streak of his own, coming from yep. um, you know being he does he didn't like the term rock legend, but yeah, he, he was painted with it a lot, and and famously just w wouldn't touch drugs. He said he smoked ten joints in his life. It just made him feel sleepy. You know, mm. wouldn't touch it. And, and in fact, uh, there was that interviewer once who said to him, it, "It sounds like your music sounds like you're on drugs." He, he just replied, hey. well, "People aren't accustomed to excellence." I <laughs> 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 mean, um, he was really into smoking, and uh, so he said uh, tobacco was his favourite vegetable. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's very good. And he also had a very quite a. You could say he had quite a strong anti-jingoism sentiment too, uh, yes. as well. I mean, especially through the Reagan years. Um, that was, I mean, he satirised that, but um, it, it was, it was I mean, all he did was very quite serious in, in, in that respect. Yeah, I, th I think also um, to get back to Cage and um, to try to look at, I think the similarities is this sort of frontier spirit of these mm. two characters, um, which is very much a hallmark of um, America. There, there's this... Uh, it's almost a chip on their shoulder about Europe. And um, uh, that goes back to Ives, who used to, you know, that, there'd be parties at um, Ives's place where he used to send up U European music and say what, what a lot of crap Ravel was and <laughs> all this sort of thing. And um, <laughs> it, right. it really, really, yeah. I mean, the point is, though, that there was this struggle and um, as opposed to other places, you could say Australia, where... Um, there isn't a, a sort of a strong sense of going out and um, making your own uh, instruments or making your own uh, music, with the possible exception of people like Granger. But um, there, there isn't um, 
as there was in America, this sort of uh, reaction that produced an efflorescence of um, uh, characters like, you know, Copeland and um, uh, Gershwin even and Bernstein, uh, Bernstein and uh, Cage was very much like that. And Zappa was like this. One of the first um, uh, television appearances of Zappa was um, using something that seems almost um, approved by John Cage. Um, Zappa plays a bicycle on the Steve Allen show. Mm. And uh, the bicycle, of course, is associated intimately with um, Cage through the works of Marcel Duchamp. Um, and Duchamp was a huge influence, as Miro was on, on uh, Cage. And Zappa similarly had this strong visual arts background and worked a lot with visual artists like um, Crum and the guy that did Droodle's Price. And... Um, uh, there was this very strong current that, that you used your life as a musician as an artwork and you were very aware of what, what was going on. So, um, you know, to present um, the bicycle as a musical instrument on a, on a late-night talk show of Zappa is pure cage in but, my... But also there's, uh, t there's two uh, incidents of, of both, both men um, subverting uh, a commercial um, format of, the, of a TV show. So um, Zappa on the early tour and um, they were on a, on a TV show, a variety show, and his band was asked to play their favourite... Uh, the, the top hit, but um, to lip-sync it. And uh, yeah. Zappa thought this was absolutely outrageous and made a mockery <laughs> of his um, artistry. Um, uh, so they said, OK, well, we'll, we'll do it, but uh, we'll do it in our terms. So he went to the prop department and grabbed whatever he could from the TV and created a set and uh, and then got the members of the band to um, play a series, uh, to just do a series of repetitive <coughs> movements throughout the song, random, for the length <laughs> of the song. So they completely subverted this lip-syncing idea. And Cage, who was on an Italian um, game show uh, as an expert on mushrooms, mm. um, in, in, in order to earn some money, because he was desperate for, for money and there was a big prize, um, and, and he agreed to uh, do music as part of, of each episode that he was in, um, but he said that he would uh, do a piece of water music based on the props and the things he could find in the studio. So there was a, a pressure cooker and a vase and this and that and a rubber fish. And he created a water music piece that went live to air in Italy and caused a sensation. So, <laughs> and that's pure Zappa. <laughs> pure Zappa and pure Dada. And, yeah. and these are both Dada events that Zappa calls Dada. He acknowledged what he was doing. And, and there's literally hundreds of... We could talk about this all night for hours. But some of you have a very busy second half of this concert coming up, so we'd be better wrap it up there. Yeah. Um, so thank you very much to Ginny Marsh, Michael Kieran Harvey, and to Peter Neville for being on here. Um, a couple of quick thank yous uh, from the Upload Download. Um, thanks to the panel, of course. Uh, Jonas at the back there on sound, um, Alison McLean, who also helps us out with production, um, Nick Barclay and Megan Sully, the rest of the Anam staff. Um, Alison Wright produced the, uh, the theme music you heard at the start there, which was Shasta 10, but dubstep. That's great. Um, <laughs> thank you for all for being here tonight. It's, it's really wonderful to see so many of you here um, you know, coming, listening to Cage, coming, listening to Zappa. Um, if you want to hear more of the podcast, go to iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and search for Anam. We're called the Upbow Download. We've got some uh, about six episodes from last year, and there's six coming up this year. Yeah. And I reckon uh, that just about wraps it up. Mm. So uh, in, hope you've enjoyed your dinner. Hope you've enjoyed your time with us. And uh, yeah, we'll see you in the second half. Cool. Thank you.